Hello everyone and welcome to the Mimetic Exegete podcast. I'm your host Simon Skidmore. Today we complete our study on the letter to the Colossians. According to this book, the whole world is shrouded in the darkness of mimetic rivalry as everyone competes in rivalry against everyone else over commonly desired objects. Yet the Colossians have emancipated themselves from this lifestyle through the revelation of the Christ mystery. Through his death, Jesus reveals the scapegoat mechanism and points forward to a better way of living. By denouncing their mimetic idols, the Colossians resolve to imitate Jesus' non-mimetic lifestyle, characterized by love, joy, contentment, and gratitude. While the kingdom of darkness destroys and divides, the non-mimetic lifestyle creates, unifies, and sustains all things. The author of the letter to the Colossians urges his audience to persevere in this lifestyle and resist the temptation to yield to mimetic idols. Reading on now from chapter 3, verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as if you are men pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for people. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. Passages such as these attract a lot of criticism from many people. To many modern people, the idea that wives should submit to their husbands seems archaic and barbaric. Also, this passage appears to encourage slavery as it instructs bond servants to diligently serve their masters. Much ink has been spilt and Forrest Hewen to either defend or attack these ideas, so I don't feel the need to go there myself. That said, I would like to make one observation about the instructions delivered in this passage. Each command is delivered as a pigeon pair, as both parties in the relationship are addressed. In so doing, the author acknowledges the responsibility of both parties in any relationship. This approach also helps to diffuse the scapegoat mechanism. When a community executes its scapegoat, that person is blamed entirely for the crisis, while the community accept no responsibility. For example, men are often unilaterally blamed for domestic violence even though recent studies suggest that women are even the initiators and reciprocators of domestic violence. Dividing the world into villains and victims keeps this archaic expression of destructive violence in circulation. Alternatively, acknowledging everyone's role in cultivating healthy relationships allows us to create a better world together, and that's what the author to Colossians is trying to do. According to our passage, wives must submit to their husbands who are commanded to love their wives and treat them gently. 
When read within the context of the author's vision of a community characterized by positive mimesis, these commands encourage domestic harmony. Yes, they assume a patriarchal society with tightly defined gender roles which may differ from our modern context. Although to many these commands see archaic and misogynistic, healthy, non-mimetic relationships are cultivated within marriage so long as both spouses adhere to these commands. Alternatively, wives may imitate their husband's lust for control and desire to rule over them. The wife's desire to rule is then imitated by her husband who strengthens his resolve to maintain control over his spouse. As we saw in our study on the book of Genesis, this was indeed part of the curse pronounced upon the women in chapter 3. You will desire to rule over your husband, but he will rule over you. The desire to rule becomes the commonly desired object over which both spouses engage one another in mimetic rivalry. Now, husband and wife are no longer unified as one flesh, but rather divided as doubles who each view the other as a monstrous obstacle to their own desire. Even more so, when husbands attempt to ruthlessly force their wives into submission. In the end, mimetic rivalry precipitates the breakdown of the marriage relationship from within. To avoid this scenario, the author commands wives to graciously accept their submissive role in the marital relationship and instructs husbands to avoid becoming an object to their spouse's submission by dealing gently with them. This pseudo-hierarchy of the husband as the head and the woman as the submissive partner also helps stifle mimetic rivalry by placing social distance between husbands and their wives. As I've mentioned in previous episodes, within these patriarchal societies, it was abhorrent and anathema for a woman to engage in mimetic rivalry with a man. The social boundaries placed around such rivalry help to minimize mimetic rivalry and violence within the family unit. Of course, in our post-patriarchal society, these normal constraints often don't exist which opens the door for husbands and wives, spouses and partners to engage in mimetic violence and rivalry with one another. This observation makes it all the more pertinent for husbands and wives, spouses and partners to create a positive cycle of mimesis within their relationship. I remember a line from John Piper's little book on sex, which went something like, your goal should be to outdo one another by serving each other. I think Piper's point extends past the bedroom into every single angle of married life. Two partners who are 100% focused upon serving one another and meeting one another's needs will automatically create a cycle of positive mimesis within the relationship which will only serve to cultivate those fruits of non-mimetic lifestyles such as love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, patience and self-control. These are the characteristics of living out the Christ mystery in our lives. And it was within this context that wives are commanded to submit to their husbands by the qualification as is fitting in the Lord. So the command for submission is not a blanket, unqualified dictum. 
but rather advice for maintaining a healthy non-mimetic relationship within the context of the patriarchal worldview. According to our letter, children must obey their parents following the same patriarchal model which influences the marriage relationship. In contrast to the qualified command for wives to submit to their husbands within the Lord, children are unequivocally commanded to obey their parents in everything, for this is pleasing to the Lord. Now, I'm sure there are certain scenarios in which the writer would say to a child, no, you can't obey your parents in that instance. Perhaps the parents are instructing the children to do something which is immoral and wrong. Who knows? But I'm sure there is a scenario when the writer would say, no, 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 that's where I draw the line. Children, don't obey your parents if they tell you to do that. That said, I think the author has a more idyllic view of the Christian non-mimetic lifestyle and for this reason says that children should always obey their parents. I think he is assuming that they will never ask the children to do something which is immoral or wrong. And that's the reason for the unequivocal language used here. The disobedient child engages their parents in a bitter rivalry as they fight to establish their own autonomy. In the eyes of the child, their parents become an obstacle to their desired object of freedom and independence. In response, parents may be tempted to force their child into submission through harsh discipline, but doing so will only fortify the child's desire for freedom from parental constraints. The relationship between the child and their parents breaks down as the rivalry between the parents and the child becomes intensified and the child begins to view their parents as oppressive monsters. To avoid this scenario, our text cautions fathers against provoking their children lest they become discouraged. The Greek lexicon of the New Testament and early Christian literature defines the word translated as provoked here as to cause someone to react in a way that suggests acceptance of a challenge. In other words, our passage warns parents against inciting mimetic rivalry within the child and parent relationship. Those of us who are parents understand the delicate dance between effective discipline and overbearing parenting. We all desire to raise happy, healthy individuals who have the necessary skills and disciplines to function reasonably well in the big wide world. While many people will agree that parental guidance and discipline is crucial to this ultimate goal, if discipline fuels mimetic rivalry between parents and children, it becomes counterproductive. Becoming a positive model for your child to imitate is crucial to the effective child-rearing experience. Inspire your child's imitation through the non-mimetic fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, and self-control. In so doing, you will gain and maintain your child's respect, which opens the door to effective guidance. If your child believes you are in their corner and genuinely have their best interests at heart, they will be more likely to listen to your instruction. However, children will not listen to parents who they view as monstrous overlords determined to crush their joy and happiness. Spend time with your child reflecting on their everyday life experiences so you can support their journey and share the wisdom needed to travel the road ahead. 
By these means, you will become a guide, a mentor, and a coach to your child, rather than an oppressive overlord to be either endured or overthrown. Of course, real life is messy and complicated, and so such a simple formula is no magic bullet. But I believe that if we persevere, we will have a positive impact on our child's growth and relationships. Much to the chagrin of many moderns, the author also encourages slaves to unequivocally obey their masters with the promise of divine blessing. Verse 24 goes as far as to equate serving one's master with indulging and engaging in the Christ mystery. Passages such as these have a rather dark history, especially in North America, where plantation owners would employ pastors to preach such sermons to help keep their slaves engaged and obedient. In our modern world, most of us, I'd probably say pretty well everyone listening to this podcast would agree that slavery is wrong. And the things that were done to African Americans back in the day were very wrong. And we should never be condoning that. With that said, as we've seen in previous podcasts, the Bible is sometimes quite optimistic about the slave and the master relationship. We saw in Deuteronomy how the text makes provision for the slave who just doesn't want to leave their master. Even when their time is up, they still want to remain and keep serving them for whatever reason. In this example, the servant is indentured to their master to pay off a debt they cannot pay off by any other means. Perhaps the closest parallel to our day is the fact that people have to go and work a nine to five job to pay off the debts they have, whether it be their credit card or their mortgage or their car loans. They are locked into going to a job. Sometimes they don't want to, sometimes they don't want to be there, but in a monetary economic sense, they are enslaved to their boss so that they have to go in and work every day. If they don't, they'll lose their job, they won't get paid, they won't have any income, which means they will lose their house, their car, and maybe even much, much more. So many of us who work a job might be able to relate to the plight of these bond servants, and those who employ people might be able to relate to the job and role played by the masters in this text. Again, here in our text, masters are commanded to treat their bond servants justly and fairly, knowing that they have a master in heaven. In other words, even if they think they can get away with oppressing these servants, they will ultimately be recompensed for the evil they've inflicted upon them. To this end, masters must reflect the fruits of the non-mimetic lifestyle towards their bond servants. In response, bond servants must obey their earthly masters, not just when they're watching, not just to please them, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. By these means, they are serving the Lord Christ. We've seen this pattern in each of the relationships addressed in this passage. Husbands and wives, children and parents, and now bond servants and masters. In each scenario, the author frames the 
command as a call to worship. In so doing, the author transforms the profane realm of human everyday relationships into a sacred calling. All of a sudden, through their holy vocation, the bond servant is now working to serve the Lord. And for this reason must work heartily for the Lord and not for people. Here we see a very important principle for everyday human life. The recognition of our everyday vocation as a sacred calling transforms the way we approach life. Our vocation, no matter how menial or tedious, now takes on a new significance as it becomes an integral part of participating in the Christ mystery. This reframing of our everyday lives imbibes them with purpose and importance which helps us find joy and meaning in our everyday lives. By these means, even the work of a lowly bondservant becomes a process of spiritual transformation. By contrast, the person who only does their job, what they're supposed to do when their boss is watching, is not working out of sincerity of heart. They ultimately grow to despise their master for oppressing them and making them perform such laborious, boring work. This mindset allows resentment and discontent to grow as the bondservant or employee in this case sets their desire on breaking free from their master's yoke. In our modern context, this may mean confronting one's manager or employer and engaging in mimetic rivalry with them. Our employment may be terminated or we may look for work elsewhere and ultimately quit that job. But the problem will never be solved because the problem is not with our master or with our employer, it is within our own approach to the world. Even if we find another vocation, another job, another master, the same problem will arise as long as we only carry out our vocation with eye service just enough to please and satisfy our boss. To find contentment in our lives, no matter who we are or what we're doing, we need to reframe our vocation as an act of spiritual service in Christ. This reframing allows us to find meaning and purpose in even the most boring and laborious of jobs which will cultivate a sense of contentment and satisfaction in our current circumstances. The constant pursuit for a better job or a better life is merely a mimetic idol which will ultimately disappoint us. Let's read on now from chapter 4 verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. These couple of verses 
in essence, sum up the whole essence of the letter. The Colossians must continue in prayer and thanksgiving to cultivate this sense of contentment and satisfaction. At the same time, they yearn for the furtherance and growth of the Christ mystery in the world. And for this reason, they pray that the author will be able to continue their mission and spread the good news further abroad. To play their role in this mission, the Colossians are commanded to walk in wisdom towards those who are not part of this Christ ministry, that they might be able to literally redeem the age. The word translated as time in this passage is the word chiron, which doesn't so much describe chronological like my clock is ticking or I'm marking off days in my calendar, but it describes a different sort of time. The age, the coming of the new age, the coming of the Messiah, if you like. This new age, which is going to be characterized by the Christ mystery. The idea communicated in these verses is that this Christ mystery has been revealed and it's bearing fruit all over the world. More and more people are learning about this new type of wisdom and the kingdom is now growing. To facilitate its growth, the Colossians must walk in wisdom. In other words, demonstrate this non-mimetic Christ lifestyle to others so that they might be inspired to imitate that same lifestyle and therefore see the kingdom grow. To this end, the Colossians must be careful about their words, be gracious, be kind with the way they speak to each other and those outside so that other people may see and be inspired by their new way of life. As we read on from chapter 4 verse 7, we see this love and kindness, this concern for one another demonstrated as the letter closes out. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts, and with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Herapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you.
Thanks again for joining me on the Mimetic Exegete podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you may do so on the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.